Hello, welcome to our second episode in our podcast mini-series where we're looking at crypto recovery. This is Chris Pease. I'm joined by Megan Elms and James Drury. And on this episode, we're going to talk a bit about a case that we've recently all advised on, which actually makes for a fascinating story. It involves our client getting hacked and basically having to track down an unknown hacker and try and recover its losses from that hacker. So we're, we're going to sort of talk about what happened and the position our client was in and, and what we then did. And happily, it's a story with a good ending. So first of all, our client is a company called Chainswap Limited, and that's a BBI company. It is a company which provides cross-chain bridges. James, will you just tell us what a cross-chain bridge is? Yeah, of course. So whilst blockchain technology is highly fascinating, one of its limitations is the fact that they are singular, don't really speak to each other. So if you take Bitcoin and Ethereum as two of the, the most used and well-known blockchains, if I was to try and send Chris one Ethereum from my Bitcoin address, then it just ends up falling into the ether and it's not recovered because they just don't talk to each other. So what Chainswap does and what a bridge does is effectively sits between and the user who is looking to trade the two crypto tokens is it will engage with a smart contract, it will deposit Bitcoin, that will be locked within that smart contract and on the other side the equivalent value of the Bitcoin will be released in Ethereum. It allows you to deal with different currencies without having to go back to an exchange, sell it, trade it, and go from there. Thanks, James. And I think having that understanding is really important just to understand what happened here. And as you say, that smart contract, that computer program, if you like, is just something which sits between the two blockchains effectively and allows that transfer and facilitates it. Now, the hackers here, what they did, there were two individual hacks about a week apart. And what the hackers did is they exploited this smart contract, which is intended to operate, as, as all smart contracts do, as a self-executing computer program that runs according to a set of rules based on its coding. And the hackers, without going into too much detail, what the hackers did was on the first attack, they managed to exploit that smart contract so as to be able to take tokens from private user wallets that had already interacted with the bridge or were at least authorized to interact with the bridge. As part of the second attack, which was slightly different, the hackers were able to exploit the smart contracts so that it requested that the token issuers who would use the bridge to allow their tokens to operate across different blockchains, the hackers used the smart contract to effectively mint an unlimited number of tokens directly from the token issuers and into their own wallets. And so the net effect of both of those hacks was that the, the hackers had other people's tokens or tokens that shouldn't have existed in their own wallets and, and they had effectively stolen those tokens, they'd misappropriated them. Megan, what did what did Chainswap do once it found out that its bridge had been hacked and that its users and its projects had lost tokens as a result? Thanks, Chris. So as you've mentioned, it wasn't Chainswap that suffered the first round of loss from the attacks. It was the users and the projects. So to maintain the goodwill that Chainswap has in the market and to maintain its reputation, it had to take some steps to try and compensate these users and projects. And it did that in different ways. Following the first attack, it could essentially carry out a one-to-one -one rate and see it by seeing how many tokens had been stolen from users. And in the second, it had to step back and 
carry out a more detailed assessment to figure out how much loss had been sustained by all of these new tokens being issued. And after it did that, it compensated users and projects using stablecoin, which is a form of cryptocurrency that is pegged at a fixed rate to fiat currency, so to normal currency. And it did that because obviously that's a stable form. It's a stable form of paying those that were affected. And it was helpful from our perspective because stablecoin obviously has that direct point of comparison with fiat. So in doing that, we were able to quantify in greater detail the losses that Chainswap had suffered from having to pay all of this compensation. And also the hacks did immediately kind of hit the press for Chainswap. So there was definitely damage to reputation in any event, aside from all of the things that Chainswap did to try and mitigate that. I think, Megan, that Chainswap had actually itself reported what, what had happened. Mm. And, and as you say, that was part of this, you know, sort of managing what had occurred. And, and as you say, trying to protect its reputation within what, what is a close-knit community. Now, pausing there, you have Chainswap that's been the subject to hacks and it's carrying the loss from that. What do you do then? What did Chainswap have to work with? bearing in mind it didn't know who had carried out these these hacks. Well, this is when we get to the true asset tracing part of the story. Something we briefly explained in our first episode is how one of the benefits of crypto is that all of the transactions are stored on the blockchain, so they're all readily traceable. Um, that meant that we could see the token, where the tokens had gone after the hacks, and we could see them sat in the wallet of the hackers. And we were able to keep tabs on those wallets and check them. And that was something Chainswap were doing. And they were seeing the funds move being moved to different wallet addresses. They were seeing tokens being swapped to different forms of tokens. And this is where the story kind of splits into two branches. And the first point is that we saw the hacker was converting a lot of the stolen tokens into a form of stablecoin. And that form of stablecoin as other forms of stablecoin had a functionality built into it, which meant that it was essentially able to freeze the tokens and stop the hackers moving them any further. And that was the token issuer that, that had the power to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's something that is built into specific types of tokens at the outset, and it means they can be frozen wherever they're held, whatever wallet they're in, um, whether they're on an exchange or not. It's not something that all tokens have. So we were fortunate that the hackers put put it in this form of token and that ultimately opened up a chain of dialogue whereby we were able to satisfy this token issuer that the tokens we had found were sourced to these hacks and that they should be permanently frozen and I think that's referred to in the crypto market as burning them and in addition to burning these tokens so that the hackers couldn't use them the issuer was also happy to reissue the equivalent amount of tokens back to our client that's an incredibly powerful practical tool then, this ability to actually just go directly to a token issuer without even necessarily having to you know, bother the courts or, or other authorities. And just being able to satisfy that token issuer that actually there's been some kind of wrongdoing or fraud and, and possibly also you know, give them any other comfort they need whether in the form of, of an indemnity or, or something else. And that, of course, allows you potentially to make a recovery in, in a very quick and, and efficient way. So that's, that's something always to bear in mind, actually, when you're faced with this scenario as a first step. But Megan, there is another strand to this, isn't there? Where there was another batch of tokens which went in another direction. Absolutely. So 
the remaining tokens that we hadn't traced to this form of stable coin, we saw continuing to be moved. And ultimately, a significant portion of them found their way to a mixer fund called Tornado Cash. And this is actually where we in, we started speaking with Kalo, because by this point, Chainswap had almost lost hope they would be able to get these tokens back. And that's probably where I should hand over to James, who can tell us a bit more about why mixer funds are seen as so scary in the crypto market. Yeah, I think actually Chris and I were maybe having a coffee that morning and me being me and boring people constantly with crypto chat. It was just something that he mentioned and we were talking about. And I was like, yeah, send it over. We'll have a look at it and we'll see what we could do. And going back to what we, we discussed in the first pod is that a lot of this is all available for everybody on a public explorer. You can go and check. I think the difficulty here was we saw the tokens being moved into Tornado Cash. Tornado Cash is a privacy mixer, which we'll discuss in a bit more detail in the next episode. But effectively, what you're doing is, as the hacker, you're engaging with this mixer, which jumbles up all of the crypto that you put into it, spits it out into a designated wallet address so that it has a break on that, that online ledger. So it makes it a bit more challenging to, to follow. As insolvency practitioners, this is kind of our bread and butter, albeit this is a bit more technical with crypto. But using our forensic analysis, we deployed some software with our partners and we managed to come back to Chris and Megan and say, look, we think we found it. We can see transactions going into the mixer. And the day after the hack, there was 24 of them. They're in a round number. They all added up to, to the amount that had been stolen. So we were fairly confident that the wallet address that had received the same amount the very next day was likely to be the wallet address of the hacker. And obviously your ability in this scenario, James, to be able to match the payments that went into Tornado Cash with you know, the, the payments that came out, at least to the extent that, that we were all satisfied they were very likely the same payments, of course meant that we then had something we could take to court and say, look, we have we are satisfied that these payments going in are the same as the payments coming out and therefore this wallet, you know, this 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 fourth wallet which you know, we hadn't we hadn't been aware of but which had received the money out was indeed another wallet being used by the hackers to move the proceeds of hacks around. And the reason that was so important is because that it, it was that receiving wallet that was then used by the hackers to interact with a centralized exchange based in Croatia. Just to wrap up, Megan, why don't you shoot through the steps that, that we then took to identify who this hacker was and, and to try and recover the losses? Yeah, absolutely. So there was two main issues that Chainswap really needed to deal with. I mean, there was the issue of recovering its losses and formulating a claim to be able to do that. But the more pressing issue was taking steps to identify who the hacker was so that when we had that claim and hopefully that claim was successful, we knew who we were going after and we knew who we were going to get the funds back from. So we won't go into too much detail on the substantive claim that was brought. But as we've mentioned, Chainswap suffered losses from compensating its user base and projects, which gave rise to a claim in damages. And then we also had, we were also running a separate argument based on unjust enrichment and trying to recover the benefit that the hackers had made from their wrongdoing. So that was the underlying claim. But then our focus turned to our interim application. And the objective of that was one, to freeze the hackers' assets 
and specifically the assets that we had identified, so the assets that were continuing to be held in the wallet addresses that Kalo had picked up through the tracing exercise. Um, two, we wanted the BVI court to do what it could to help us find out who the hacker was. And the way the BVI court was able to assist is by using the cross-border networks that it has to reach out to the Croatian authorities, because we strongly suspected that the Croatian exchange had KYC that would disclose the identity of the hacker. And that was confirmed by their terms of service and it's something that you can generally expect from well-known exchanges that are providing on and off-ramp services. So as Megan has explained, we had our process here in the BVI with the claim and the application where we got the freezing injunction and we got the assistance of the BVI court um, to seek disclosure. That was that was by letter of request, so involved you know making a formal request through the Croatian authorities and we were pretty confident we would get information as to identity, but also information as to any bank accounts to which you know, fiat currencies had been paid, if indeed the Croatian exchange had been used to off-ramp by the hackers. And we were confident we were going to get all of that, and it was just a matter of time. Now, in parallel with that process, we also spoke with Croatian Council, and they commenced their own process there to seek disclosure of the same information. We thought by having the two process running, running in parallel and at relatively limited cost, it, was, it could only speed up the time in which we'd get the information. And of course, getting the information as the identity in these situations will often be the most important thing because if you can reveal that hacker's identity, then they're all the more likely to capitulate. And, and that, I think, it's fair to say, is validated by this particular example as well. And then thirdly, we, we, we were speaking to the to law enforcement agencies in the BBI who, who kicked off their own process. And, and, I, and I think that added even more leverage to us when it came to forcing the hacker's hand. I think suffice to say that you know, we had all of those processes running and, and as we say, we were confident we were going to get the information we were looking for and it was just a matter of time and, and sure enough, not too long ago now, the hacker reached out to us using an email address that, that we'd been using to send him the court details that we'd been using to send court documents to and said he wanted to settle. So, you know, that it was a successful outcome as far as our client was concerned and just goes to show that the leverage you can create by using these, I think what's fair to say, traditional legal remedies, but in the context of you know, this new technology. So that's the end of this particular story. That's the end of this episode focusing on the chain swap case. There are a few more episodes to come. In the next one, we're going to be focusing on how you trace crypto and obstacles to it and, and going into that in a bit more detail. So we hope you join us for that one. Thank you for listening.